our message for today, and today we, bring, we begin a new sermon series at all of our campuses. It's going to go for four weeks, and uh, the title of the series, as you may have figured out from your worship folder, is Ecclesia, and that is the Greek word in your New Testament that is translated with the word church, so Ecclesia equals church, and so as you might surmise, this is a series about Jesus' church. And we get to be a part of that here at New Life, right? I, it's my custom really during the month of August every year to take a few weeks and just remind myself and remind all of you of who we are as Jesus' church and what he would have us to be all about. And, you know, if you know me, you know that I just, I just love church, I love church. I always have. And some of you hear that and you say, well, you're a pastor. You have to love church. You're paid to love church. But even before I was a pastor, there was something about church that just captivated me. My parents, I was uh, born and raised on the West Coast, and my parents raised me in church. They centered our family's life around the life of the church, and I'm grateful for that to this day. From my earliest days at Pine Grove Baptist Church, there was an ache in my heart to experience everything that the church was, everything that church had to offer. Just like some of you, though, I have some reasons to not love the church. That church, Pine Grove, developed some problems during my teen years, and there was such a there was just a, a, a stifling legalism there that was so suffocating to spiritual life that my parents eventually and uh, reluctantly felt like they needed to leave that church and move on, and it was very difficult. And then they attended a brand new church in our city, which was full of life, and it was wonderful, and it was a breath of fresh air for our family for about four years until a couple of families in the church started uh, who each had teenage daughters, the daughters got in a little spat, and then the families lined up behind their daughters, and it just got ugly, and it started to dwindle down, and it just sucked the life right out of the church until the church closed down and died. And that was extremely disheartening. And then they, my parents went to church number three, which was going great guns, and the, the place was on fire, and the atmosphere was electric, and the pastor was dynamic, and it was, it was a wonderful church, and they were leading people to Jesus and being a light in the community until that one Sunday morning when everyone discovered that the pastor had run off with the church secretary, and the whole thing just kind of imploded. And I remember I was away at college at the time. I remember the phone call from my parents telling me what had happened and just how deflated they were that this had happened. Sometimes I'm amazed that my parents have any faith at all these days. Uh, because of what they've been through with church. So I have a few reasons to not love the church. Some of you have similar stories of being hurt or disillusioned by the church. This church right here, New Life, the church that we love, is the healthiest church I've ever been in, but, but it's not perfect either, right? We've had, our, we've had our tough times. We've had our tough seasons here. And yet, Despite all of that, I, I still love the church, and I, and I hope you do too. And more importantly, Jesus still loves the church. Warts and all, despite all of its flaws, Jesus Christ paid a dear price to have a church family for himself, to dwell with forever, for eternity, and he will not give up on the church. 
And I hope you won't either. One day when Jesus was here walking this earth, he looked at his friend Peter, Peter the disciple, and he said this, I will build my ecclesia. That's the word. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church and it will be a prevailing church and the pictures of a church that's attacking the gates of hell, right? Pounding on the gates of the enemy. I I think Jesus' vision of the church is, is one that ought to captivate us, don't you? The word ecclesia, it's translated church, but what it it comes from two words that mean to be called out. Now, not called out in the negative sense, like I'm calling you out, but, but called out in the sense of being summoned, being set apart by Jesus for a unique mission and a unique purpose. Jesus' church has been called out of the world system, in a sense, to be His special people, of, a people who are marked as belonging to Him. By their confession of faith in Jesus Christ, by their baptism, a people who have been redeemed from being enslaved to sin, have been released from that, liberated from that, and who now long to obey Christ and serve their new master, Jesus. The ecclesia, the church, is a new community, a a called out family of faith-filled followers of Jesus who embrace a new value system, the the upside-down values of the kingdom of their Lord. And as his ambassadors, they commit themselves to living out those values in such a way as to reflect the character of their king, right? In hopes that their neighbors, seeing that kind of lifestyle, will want Jesus to be their king also. The church of Jesus, his ecclesia, to me, it's just a fascinating thing. It's a, it's a multifaceted, multidimensional entity. I think it's unlike anything else on the planet. Think about it. The church was meant to be a kingdom outpost where those countercultural values of Jesus' kingdom are being lived out. The church is actually a, was meant to be a colony of heaven on earth, established here on the earth. The church was meant to be a hospital for the spiritually sick, binding up the wounded, nursing the injured back to health. It's meant to be a refuge for oppressed people. It's meant to be a a home for the outcasts. It was meant to be a learning center for those who are spiritually hungry, who want to know the truth, who are seeking the truth. It was meant to be a spiritual greenhouse where people are growing and thriving and flourishing. The Bible uses a number of metaphors to describe the church, and they're intriguing to me. The Bible describes the church as a flock of sheep, right? But also as an army, that's steadily advancing the the kingdom of Christ in this world. It's also a family. And so many of us appreciate the church as our family, our spiritual family. We've got brothers and sisters in this family as well as our dad, our heavenly father and our older brother, Jesus. And we all, as members of the family, have a seat at the family table. Church is said to be a dwelling place for God in which he lives through his spirit. It's said to be a spiritual temple in which a kingdom of priests lift up their praises to God as a sacrifice. It's such a multifaceted thing. 
Paul liked to uh, talk about the church as a body, like he likened it to a human body, a knit together, interconnected, interdependent organism, a living organism, a body of believers with different members with different functions, but all contributing, working together for the health and the growth and the vitality of the body. The church of Jesus was meant to be all of that and, and more, and I believe this is what Jesus had in mind when he was hanging on that Roman cross, redeeming us from our sin, shedding his blood for us. He was thinking about that ecclesia that he was purchasing for himself. The Bible says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, and I think part of Jesus' anticipated joy was the prospect of having this glorious ecclesia for his very own. Let's all be reminded today that this thing we get to be a part of is Jesus' church. It's Jesus' church. He said, I will build my church. The church belongs to Jesus. Technically, technically speaking, this is not my church. Technically, technically speaking, it's not your church. It's Jesus' church. He paid a dear price to purchase it for himself. That's why it's hard for me to understand why some Christian people treat the church so casually, so lightly, like, like it's just another retail outlet where consumers can go to get the things they think they need to improve their lives. Let's be careful to not treat the church as just another accessory, amen? Just another add-on to our lives that we think will improve things. It's too precious a thing to Jesus to treat it like that. Or to think about it like that. I've noted through the years that when it comes to church, some people are spectators. They like to watch what's going on, and if they like what's going on, they cheer, and if they don't, they complain a little bit or, or move on. <laughs> some people are spectators. Some move from that into being players in the game, which is better, right? Getting, getting into the game, being participants. But there's a level of engagement that, that, that's on a whole different plane, I think. There, there are some of those players, some of those participants who are compelled to keep moving deeper in. Something about the gospel grabs them at a heart level. And to them, church becomes not just something they go to and not even just something they do. Church becomes who they are. I am the church. We are the church. They go all in. They, they become not just spectators and not even participants or players. They become shareholders, like vested shareholders in the health and vitality of the church. They have skin in the game. They're fully engaged in the mission. The church has become precious to them like it is to their Lord. And they long for their church to be all that it can be for Christ. Well, in the New Testament, in the New Testament book of Acts, we are given a glimpse into the life of the very first church. Now, there are a lot of churches that have that name. We're the first church of this or that. But this one in the book of Acts was the very first first church. And it was a church that was full of shareholders who were all in with the mission of that church. And it was dynamic. That church was birthed in the first century, back in the first century, in the city of Jerusalem over in the Middle East. And it was birthed by a move of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts, as you may know, was written by a doctor, written by a physician named Luke. Now, Luke had already written one book called the book of Luke. And uh, that was the prequel 
The book of Acts was the sequel. The book of Luke talked about the life of Jesus. The book of Acts talks about and records the history of the life of the first church. In this series called Ecclesia, we're going we're to go back, 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 back to the beginning and take a look at, again at that first church to, to find out what were the secrets to that church's vitality, to its dynamism. We're going to see how this thing that we get to be a part of actually had its origin, its genesis. So here's how Luke opens up the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. If you have a copy of the Bible, you can turn there right now. Acts chapter 1 verse 1 and he, he starts it out like this. In the first book, O Theophilus, we don't really know who Theophilus is, but his name meant friend of God, pretty cool name. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Luke here tells us that during that 40-day period between Jesus' resurrection from the grave and his ascension back up into heaven, he spent time with his men, his little band of followers, the disciples that he had won to himself. And he gave them a number of, of proofs, it says, that he was alive. Like, it's really me, I'm really alive. <laughs> yes, I know you went to my funeral, I know you saw me executed, but, it, but, but, but I'm alive. They needed some convincing, apparently. He also taught them, it says, principles for living life in his kingdom, which would come in very handy for them in the next few weeks and months and years as Jesus called them to spread the culture of his kingdom. And then he gave them a specific instruction in Acts 1 and verse 4. It says, while staying with them, here it is, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John, that's John the Baptist, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so he told them this, and then what did he do next? He said goodbye. <laughs> he left. He ascended back up into heaven, which I'm sure was startling to them. And although they were a bit bewildered, they went ahead and did what he had instructed them to do. They stayed in Jerusalem and they waited for something to happen. And guess what? It did happen. Ten days later, on an annual Jewish feast day called Pentecost, that was a huge festival in Jerusalem every year that drew Jewish people from all over the region to it. This year's festival, though, would be different because on this day, Jesus' followers, 120 of them at this point, 120 of them, were all gathered together in a large house, and it says they were praying and they were waiting, as Jesus had instructed them. They were, they were waiting for something, and then in, on that day, in a very special moment, Luke records that the Holy Spirit came upon them like was poured out on that group in, in an, an amazing, unusual, unique way, and I would add a loud way. He came upon them in a way that created a lot of noise, a lot of commotion. There was this loud, multi-sensory manifestation of the Holy Spirit's power. 
it was so loud that it, it, it garnered the attention of nearby people. There was so much commotion at the house that people who were there in the city milling around for the festival started to, to hear noises and, and, and understand there was something going on and they started to converge on this house to find out what all the fuss was about. Of course, there was lots of speculation about you know, what this was and Peter, Simon Peter, remember him, that, that disciple of Jesus who had had an epic fail in his life, who had denied Christ and yet after Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus on the beach reinstated him and reaffirmed his love for him and told him, I've got a, a mission for you. Peter, that guy, stood up and with a loud voice, this crowd was gathering, wanting to know what this was all about. Peter explained that this was actually an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the people of God. It was something that the Old Testament predicted was going to happen in the Old Testament book of Joel. And Peter basically looked at them and said, this is that. What you see going on right now is what was predicted hundreds of years ago, that God was going to pour out His Holy Spirit on His people. And then Peter preached the first gospel sermon in this new era, this new age, the church age. He looked out at the crowd that had gathered. He raised his decibel level a few points because he didn't have any amplification like I do. And he looked at all the people and he said, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, but you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because death could not keep its hold on him. And he went on to describe how David in the Psalms had prophesied that the Messiah would die and would rise again. And Peter said, we are witnesses of these things. That God has raised Jesus from the dead. And then he brought the sermon to a climax at the end and he said, Exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus has received the promised Holy Spirit from the Father and has poured out what you now see and hear. And then he said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord and Anointed One. Lord and Messiah. And I want to remind you that some of the people who were there listening to Peter on that day were some of the same people who just a few weeks before had been calling out for Jesus to be crucified, remember? Crucify him, crucify him. Same people. And Jesus said, you killed the wrong guy. You killed God's Messiah. And the Bible records, or Luke records in Acts, they were smitten, they were cut to the heart. They're thinking, there's no hope for us, we're doomed. There's no hope for Messiah killers. They probably thought they were dead meat. And they cried out, it says, what do we do? And in Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, here's what to do, repent. It's a good gospel call, right? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
I need you to put your shoe, yourself in the shoes of those people for a moment. Can you imagine this? One minute, you think you're toast because you killed God's Messiah, but God raised him from the dead, and he's now exalted to the right hand of God, and you're thinking, I'm going to get reduced to a pile of ashes here in a few moments. That's what you're thinking in one minute, and in the next minute, you're hearing from Peter that you can be forgiven. You could be forgiven. You can have eternal life. You can even have the Holy Spirit who's been poured out here. If you were there, you would have been thinking, wow, I should be condemned forever for executing God's Holy Son, but, but He's offering us the gift of forgiveness? He's offering us eternal life? What kind of a God would do that? Well, what, what kind of foreign, otherworldly kind of love is this that God would love those who have postured themselves as His enemies? Well, do you think they wanted to take Peter up on that offer? Well, sure they did. Lots of them did. And Luke records this in verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So, bam, the church gets started with 3,000 people, plus 120. So, 3,120 people take membership on day one of the new church. What a day. How exciting that must have been. And remember, there were people there from all over the region, right? And, 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 and now they'd experienced this, and now they were saved by the grace of Christ. They were charter members of this new thing that was called the ecclesia, the church. Everything was new and exciting. It felt like a big family, and they wanted to stay. They didn't want to go back home. They, wanted, they didn't want to miss anything that God had for them, and, and so they did. Luke tells us what happened next. And this is a very famous passage, and this is the passage where we're going to be for the next several weeks in this series. Just, just listen to the, the, the initial activity and the rhythms that were established in this first church right out of the chute. Acts 2.42. Here's what they did. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any of them had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, that's a big large space, big crowd, and breaking bread in their homes, that's small home-sized gatherings, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So Jesus' church was born, and the members now begin to live out ecclesia life together, and it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, there was some messiness ahead for that church. There always, there's always messiness in the church, right? As long as the church is comprised of people, of human beings who are flawed and imperfect, there's going to be messiness. There was messiness in, in this first church, even in a church led by Jesus' own apostles, John and James and Peter and Matthew and all those guys. Some messiness was coming. Rapid growth brings some messiness and some challenges, right? 
Ethnic diversity brings some messiness and some challenges. Uh, when a congregation lives out the life of Jesus, that brings some challenges, in this case in the form of persecution from the state that was hostile towards Christianity and towards a new king named Jesus and the allegiance that he was calling for. When you have church members who are hypocritical and two-faced, that brings about some messiness. They would experience all of that. But for these first few days and weeks, foundations were being laid and rhythms of church life were being established that was going to carry them through all of that and result in a ripple effect of spiritual impact that would extend all the way down to our day today. We're here today worshiping Jesus because of what happened in that church 20 centuries ago. There is a word, a single word, in this description of the church there that I want us to key in on for a few moments right before we partake of, of breaking bread here, the Lord's table, okay? It's a word that's found in verse 42, and it is the word devoted. Would you say that with me? Devoted. It says, and they devoted themselves to some things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. So this brand new church of 3,120 people was filled with people, freshly saved, just still wet coming out of the baptistry, people who were not spectators, and not just participants, but who were devoted, who were all in, who were vested, who were shareholders in the movement that they had just become a part of. What does it mean to be devoted? I looked up the word, and they were devoted. What does that mean? To be devoted means to continue steadfastly in a fixed direction. It means to continue to do something with intense effort even when it's not easy. It means to persist, to persevere down a path despite obstacles. In short, to be devoted means to be committed. They were committed. They were all in. They, they embraced what one man called a long obedience in the same direction. They weren't casual about their faith in Jesus. They weren't casual about their commitment to ecclesia. They didn't have a kind of a ho-hum, cavalier attitude about what it meant to be a member of that church, no. They were committed to their new family. They were devoted. They were family now. And they were committed to living ecclesia life together in the presence of God. That's what characterized this first church, being devoted. As a pastor, I often think about what it is that brings people to this place of being devoted. We know that devotion is a commitment that comes from where? It comes from a deep place, deep inside of us, right? It, it comes from our hearts. What is it, I often wonder, that produces passionate commitment in the people of God? We're going to talk more about this next week. But for now, what I'd like you to consider is, is this thought, which I believe is supported by the text here, and it's this. Devotion is a response. True devotion is not something you can work up on your own. It's not something that can be ginned up or, or manufactured. 
being devoted is a response to a stimulus of some sort. Something draws devotion out of us. Something pulls devotion out of us. Isn't that true? We talk about a devoted husband or a devoted wife or a devoted fan of the Buckeyes, right? And we know that that, that, that devotion, it's something that's pulled out of us because our hearts have been captivated by something. In fact, that could be said accurately, I believe. True devotion is a response of the heart to something that has captivated it. Truth is that the things we're devoted to are the things that have captivated our hearts, our minds, our imaginations, our passions. Devotion is a response. I've learned through the years that if I want God's people to be more devoted to the church, it's not just a matter of talking louder. It's not just a matter of yelling at you and saying, be more devoted to the church. (laughs) It's got to come from a, a deeper place. So what was it that called forth the deep devotion of this congregation of of the very first Christian people? And I would contend this. (coughs) Excuse me. Deep devotion to Christ's ecclesia, his church, is the natural response to having an accurate perception and a joyful reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Recall what had just taken place for this church. What had just happened? What preceded this devotedness? Well, they had just heard a clear and compelling presentation of the gospel. The good news of Jesus. And they got it. It sunk in. This pardon that God, the creator of the universe, was offering them at great cost to himself, when they had crucified his son, the the reality of that sunk in, it gripped their hearts. And yeah, their response was repentance and faith, but it was also devotion and commitment. Listen, God's commitment to them prompted their reciprocal commitment to God. Does that make sense? When they, got, when they got it, when they realized Jesus is devoted to us, he laid down his life for us, how can we not be devoted to that thing that he is devoted to? And, and it happened in them back then, and it's also happened here in this ecclesia, in New Life Church. I've seen it in my own life. I've observed it in many of your lives, as many of you. In this ecclesia, New Life Church, have heard the good news of Jesus' love for you. And and you've taken in the the truth of all that he did for you to bring you into the family of God as you've gained a more accurate perception that Jesus literally laid his life down for you, gave himself up for you, that he was willing to take your guilt upon himself. You say, well, I, I I didn't nail Jesus to the cross. Oh, yes, you did. And so did I. Because he died for our sins. He had no sins of his own. And our sins needed dying for. If we're going to avoid judgment, if we're going to avoid the eternal wrath of God, justly deserved by a rebellious race, our sins needed to be paid for to preserve the justice of God. 
And yet Jesus, and, and many of you understand this, stepped into our place. He became our substitute. He took our guilt and he took the wrath of God that we deserve. Not only that, some of you have grasped the fact that not only did Jesus take our sins, but he also extended to us the offer of his righteousness. The great exchange, Martin Luther called it. Jesus took our sin and he gave us his perfect straight A report card of always doing the Father's will so that we could stand before God, not with our own record, which would doom us, but with the record of Jesus so that when God sees us, he sees Jesus. I'll tell you, when you get that down deep in your bones, it calls something forth out of you. It calls something out of you. You say, how can I not respond and reciprocate by loving this one who loved me in a way I've never been loved before? And how can I not be passionately devoted to the things that he's passionately devoted to? Devotion is a response. A compulsion to respond in that way. If you are one today who looks into your heart and you don't see much passion for Jesus, if you're one today who, if you make an honest assessment of yourself, you say, I, I don't have that much devotion to Jesus' church and to his mission in this world, I want you to understand it's not because I'm not yelling yet loud enough at you. It's also not that you're just not wired that way, that you're kind of an undisciplined, uncommitted person. I would say, no, I don't think so. It's due to something else. It's due to the fact that something other than Jesus has captured your heart. Your heart has, has been captivated by something else because, you know what, we're all devoted to something. We're all devoted to something. Your heart has been captivated by something and you have committed yourself to that thing in response. What is it? I don't know. It might be a person who's come into your life who's captivated your heart and you're devoted to them as a result. It might be a goal you're aiming at. It might be a career pursuit. It might be acquiring a million likes on your social media page. Any one of a number of thousand things can captivate our hearts, right? Money, pleasure, being viewed as a smart and successful person. It might be taking risks and, and getting that adrenaline rush that we love. It might be your favorite team. It might be having a picture, postcard picture perfect family. It, it might be the prospect of retiring and moving to Florida and laying on the beach drinking adult beverages and playing golf every day. Something, something, something has captivated your heart and has called forth devotion out of you. We could talk about video games. We could talk about sexual pleasures and illicit encounters. And Listen, here's the truth. Our hearts are incapable of being immune to captivation. It's what hearts do. It's what hearts do. So there's a lot to think about, and I'm going to ask you to just ponder this and think about what is it that I am devoted to above all else in response to what I've allowed to captivate my heart. Is it Jesus? Is it his life? Is it his mission on this earth? Is it his ecclesia? Or is it something else? Just take an honest inventory of that.
that ecclesia was full of people who were so devoted to Jesus and his church, there was no stopping them, and their, their devotion was a response. I mentioned earlier in this sermon that the church can be a place of hurt and can be a place of disappointment and disillusionment, right? And that's true. But you know what? When the church is working right, when the church is functioning like Jesus intended it to function, there's beautiful things that happen. And I'm in a, I'm in a position where I get to hear regularly every week about things that happen that let me know that there are hundreds of devoted people in this ecclesia here at New Life. I uh, read a small group report this week where the group leader said, hey, our group this week hand-wrote 58 thank you notes to the teachers at Goshen Lane Elementary School, and we included a, a, a stick of extra gum so that they would have extra patience this year with their students, and it's just, just a, such a blessing for us to be able to reach out and bless the teachers like that. And I thought, praise God. Another small group this week uh, went over to Grin, Gehanna Residence in Need, and they assembled school supplies in over 400 backpacks to give to needy students right here in our community as the school year gets off to a, a start. That's how the ecclesia is supposed to work. That's how devoted people think about their lives. How can I serve? How can I give? I think about something I heard just last Sunday right here in this room when a couple came up to me and, 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 and they were so excited. They said, you know, we were just talking to a family here during the welcome time, and, and we told them that after church we've got to go you know, get a new uh, stove, a new gas oven, because ours conked out, and we don't know how we're going to move it and everything. And a guy just said, well, I got a truck. I got a truck. And you know, when you've got a truck, <laughs> you can flat out do stuff. And he said, hey, I'll meet you at the store. I'll load it up for you. I'll take it up the stairs on your back deck for you. I'll help you hook it up. I'll take your old conked out oven and I'll put it in my truck and I'll dispose of it for you. And this couple was like, wow. I mean, where, where does that happen? You know, that, that someone would just impromptu on the spur of the moment respond in that way and just say, I, we, I just want help. And I hear story after story after story after story of things like that going on in our church. I remember the week that a person came up to me after service and they said, someone just handed me $1,000 right over here. All you people are like, yeah, I'm in the right, right place today. <laughs> you know, I just mentioned I had some needs, and somebody handed me $1,000. Like, that's New Life Church, you know? That's just the way we are, because we've been captivated by Jesus. Well, one of the spiritual practices that those first Christian people were devoted to was the regular observance of breaking bread together. Communion, we call it. And we do that regularly here, about 10 times a year. Communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, is the memorial, right? It's the memorial that keeps in front of us the fact that our Lord and Savior laid his life down for us. He allowed his body to be crushed for us. He spilled out his precious, life-giving, soul-cleansing, sin-conquering blood for us. And we need to be reminded of of the sacrifice and be eternally grateful for that. So in these next few moments, we're going to do what the early church did. We're going to come, hundreds of us. There's um, little gluten-free wafers that represent the body of Christ. There's a little 
cup of juice that represents his shed blood for us. And you can come. If you're a believer, this is for believers. If you're not quite there yet in your spiritual journey, it's okay to take a pass on this, okay? And just think about the things I've already shared with you that Jesus has done. But, but if you're a believer, I encourage you to come in just a moment. Take this. You can take it back to your seat. You can find a place around the auditorium here to just remember how much Jesus loves you and how he expressed that love. So would you join me in a moment of reflection, in a moment of self-examination, in a moment of prayer? Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, thank you for loving us like no one else has loved us. When we were unlovely, when we were unlovable, when we were your enemies, when we didn't give a rip about you, we were just self-absorbed, living our own lives for ourselves, trying to make a name for ourselves. And then you chased us down. And you captured our hearts. And we love because you first loved us. And we need a reminder of that today. Would you meet us in a special way? Meet your people in a special way these next few moments as we remember the crushed, bruised body of Jesus and his blood that he willingly poured out for us. And we say thank you once again. May devotion rise in our hearts as we grasp this maybe on a new level, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.